0: This is the Champlain Society podcast, witness to yesterday. My name is Greg Marsheldon, and I'm talking from the Alan Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University in downtown Toronto. For most Canadian baby boomers, the Vietnam War was a major event in their lives, even though Canada was not directly involved as a combatant. On this podcast, we have mainly interviewed historians, whether academic or popular, about Canadian history. Today, we are interviewing a literary academic and published writer about history. My guest in the studio is Robert McGill. He is an associate professor of English at the University of Toronto. He joins me in the studio today to talk about the history of the Vietnam War as experienced by Canadians through the literature of the day. Our discussion will be based on his new book, War is Here, the Vietnam War and Canadian Literature. Robert Welcome to Witness to Yesterday, the Champlain Society podcast on Canadian history. Thank you. Tell me, although your main interest is literature, you are obviously fascinated by history, particularly political history. Where did that interest come from?
1: Well, in terms of the Vietnam War, it actually came from another war, another time of war, and that was the past decade uh, during the war in Iraq, right from the beginnings of that war from the discussion of the invasion and the discussion of whether Canada was going to join in it people were looking back to the Vietnam War it was a point of reference it was a point of pride for many Canadians that Canada hadn't joined the Vietnam War Uh, and so it became a part of that political debate and as the war went on Vietnam continued to be referenced it was referenced as um, the war was going poorly as the reports of atrocities by American soldiers started to come out, uh, as the debate started about whether to accept in Canada American deserters. Once more, even in Parliament, Vietnam was referenced as a, as a, a prior instance of Canada's identity as a sanctuary for political dissidents. And so this was remarkable to me. It was remarkable that this war, many decades past, was still seen as part and parcel of something intrinsic to what people were seeing as a Canadian identity. As a literary scholar and as a writer, I also knew that the period of the Vietnam War had witnessed just an unprecedented flourishing of Canadian literature. Uh, It was a time when Canadian publishers and magazines that are still in existence started up. It was a time when many Canadian writers who we now think of as canonical writers, came into national prominence from Margaret Atwood to Michael Ondaatje and Alice Munro. So the question for me was, well, if, if the, this wartime, uh, the time of the Vietnam War was a time when Canadian identity, as we now think of it, began to be consolidated in certain myths of the country as liberal, as humanitarian, as a sanctuary, as harmonious, harmoniously multicultural, were popularized then. What was, what was literature's role? in all of this. What were Canadian writers uh, saying about the war at the time, and and how were they taking part in that national conversation and that national myth-making?
0: Now, years ago, when I used to teach Canadian and European history, I occasionally used extracts out of novels and the occasional bit of poetry to explain a historical episode or character, particularly when I was teaching on the Great War, for example. But I've never used novels and poetry as a key source, generally, in my teaching. I always had a nagging feeling I could have done even more with literature, uh, something like what you've done. So tell me, what do you think literature can tell us about history?
1: I think it can tell us a lot, and it can tell us a lot uh, depending on what kind of literature we're talking about. Is it, uh, first of all, literature of a particular period, and then more contemporary literature about a period. So in the first instance, going back to the literature of the war uh, written by Canadian authors, what's remarkable about it, not least, is the way in which different issues come to bear on one another in the rhetoric that gets used in the literature of the time. Nowadays, for instance, we might get a history book on the war, another history book on the women's movement. Well, if you go back to Canadian literature of the time, what was remarkable to me is how often the rhetoric of war and the rhetoric of gender get connected to one another, often in the course of talking about Canadian nationalism at the time. So this is true, especially in certain Canadian novels that went so far as to imagine Canada-U.S. conflict. Uh, they they imagined what would happen if Canada became another Vietnam. And again and again, as these stories get told, what emerges as the sort of quintessential American or sorry Canadian hero of the time that's an interesting slip of the tongue on my part is someone who's you know martially heroic courageous valorous virile and indeed indeed a man someone who indeed might look not so dissimilar to um, certain heroic pictures of American soldiers at the time so even as Canadians were very nationalistically imagining standing up to America They were circulating and recirculating a myth of the soldier that was very much promoting conventional ideas of masculinity, very patriarchal ideas of masculinity. That's a really interesting complicatedness of the literature of the time. And I think it helps us to go back to that literature and think about how, in people's minds at the time, issues like the Vietnam War and issues like the women's movement might not be so separate. It actually also, I think, helps us to think about Um, certain political lines and quotations that have survived the period. Um, I always think about Pierre Trudeau's claim that that, uh, for Canada, being next to the US was like sleeping with an elephant. Trudeau was always in some way about sex. And that line, very coyly, but I think pointedly, was about sex. It was bringing the rhetoric of sexual relations to bear on international relations. If we go back to Canlet of the time, we see he's not the only one doing that. In fact, he's playing on something that's there in the discourse more broadly, and it is certainly there in literary texts. So that's the literature of the time, and literature today, I think, goes back and looks at what has fallen out of the contemporary consciousness often. For instance, uh, Catherine Kittenbauer's novel All the Broken Things um, from just a few years ago reminds us that it wasn't just Canada um, as peacekeeper during the Vietnam War. It was, Canada was also a place that was uh, manufacturing materiel, including Agent Orange, for the U.S. military effort. That's a story that perhaps has fallen out of the picture because it doesn't fit with certain sanguine, mm-hmm. optimistic, idealized notions of Canada at the time.
0: Well, for sure. The, the combatants in the Vietnam War, were the United States, North Vietnam, South Vietnam, and But there were others as well australians were there that's largely forgotten but canadians were not there directly um and yet the vietnam war looms very large in the canadian consciousness and certainly the time that you're talking about uh, the explosion of canadian literature it was very prominent in the minds of canadian writers at the time and still is uh, based upon what I've read in your book. So why was that? Why is that? Vietnam was perhaps the key
1: political issue in Canada and as, as well as the United States during the late 60s and early 70s. And, you know, partly it was so important for Canadians and Canadian writers for the same reasons it was important in the U.S. and elsewhere. That is to say, it was a war with enormous casualties. It was a war where there were serious doubts about whether the U.S. should uh, even be prosecuting it, and increasingly doubts about whether the U.S. government was being honest in the way it was talking about how it was prosecuting it. Canadians had a special relationship to it, though, because they were so closely connected to U.S. media, which were themselves obviously preoccupied by the war. And it was a Canadian Marshal McLuhan who called the Vietnam War the first TV war. And he was talking about the way in which it was being fought, in a sense, in the American home, that there was a the battle for popular opinion about the war and U.S. support of the war effort. Uh, but of course, McLuhan was well aware it was also in that sense then being fought in the Canadian home because Canadians were as likely to get their, their news from U.S. sources as American ones. And in fact, that's. Another reason why the war was so important to Canadians because it touched a nerve in terms of Canadian worries about American domination, about Americans' economic domination of Canada, um, the so-called branch plant economy of the time, political domination in terms of U.S. influence on uh, Canadian domestic policy, and, of course, cultural dominance, radio, TV, the movies, an interesting thing about this then is that even though Canadians were so thoroughly imbibing U.S. mass media of the time, nevertheless, increasingly during the war, there was a real, a, a stronger and stronger anti-war and anti-U.S. sentiment in Canada. They were watching all this news about the war, very intimately engaged in it in this way, but always at a distance from it because their country, Canada, was not... Involved in the word directly militaristically because that news uh, that they were consuming was not for them. They were always looking over the shoulder of the American viewer, as it were. And uh, McLuhan later made some interesting claims that Canada, through such kind of consumption, developed a kind of ironic critical distance. On America, And I think we can see that in the, uh, much of the literature of the time.
0: And well, We can see it today in terms of the view of American politics by Canadians and the way in which uh, Donald Trump is, for example, discussed pretty regularly in the Canadian media. But uh, going back to the 1960s and the early 1970s and the literature that was produced right at that time, did Canadian... Novelists and poets uh, have a common way of seeing the Vietnam War, or was there a spectrum of views about the Vietnam War?
1: It's remarkable how similar the views were. Uh, An interesting example in this case is a 1968 book that was edited by the poet Al Purdy. And it was a book of Canadians' views, Canadian writers' views of the United States. And the book was called The New Romans. It ended up being a big bestseller. In fact, it had a lot of um, big names of the time in it. And uh, if you look at those views and essays and poetry collected in that book, many of the writers uh, address the Vietnam War. It's obviously a key issue for them in thinking about the states, not surprising in 1968. And all of them who address the war come out against it in one way or another. So that's a kind of obvious way in which there was consensus about the war at that point another way of answering the question is that well to come back to what i was saying earlier canadian writers were were viewing the war through u.s mass media and what's interesting is that they often make that a part of their literary engagements with the war so you might expect nowadays after the, the slew of american films about the war uh focusing on u.s veterans and the u.s combatant experience that there'd be such writing during the war but no in fact most of the canadian literature of the time thinks of the war through the, the eyes of canadian protagonists canadian writers are thinking about what does this war mean for canadians uh, what does it mean for them to be indeed engaging with this war through mass media reading about it in the newspaper every day watching it on tv so time and again you get these little narratives in poetry in short fiction of canadians pondering The war, as they've engaged with it, uh, watching it or reading about it, and so the Canadian writers were not only thinking about uh, what the war meant for Canada and Canadians who were apart from it and yet part of it by virtue of the mass media. They were often engaging in an early version of what we'd now call media studies, thinking critically about how the media themselves were making the message and informing people's views, shaping people's views of the war for for better or for worse.
0: There were some real classic novels written uh, in this period. And I'm thinking about one of the first Margaret Atwood novels I ever read, Surfacing, which had a huge impact on my life, but also other great classics of the period. Out of all of these, which was the most insightful to you in your understanding of this era, given that you weren't born, you didn't directly experience, it, so you looked back at it in a sense and had to learn it through the experience and uh, writings of others.
1: You know, the first time I read all of these books, I didn't think about Vietnam, and it was only once uh, I was started going back to the literature of the time and reading the, the explicitly war-related uh, literature, that I rethought each of these books and realized that each in their way was dealing with Vietnam. And I think that each of them is, is doing something really interesting, but something quite different. Um, the Collected Works of Billy the Kid, Michael and Datch's book, is, as you'd guess from the title, very much explicitly about that late 19th century American outlaw. You know, there's no mention of Vietnam explicitly in that book. But as the the book represents Billy the Kid as this this um, young free spirit who's caught up in violence, in fact he's caught up in something called a war, the Lincoln County War, which is actually a you know a conflict between rival cattle factions in the American West. He's caught up in that as he's as he's prosecuted by the law, and in Andacha's telling of it, crosses the border into Canada twice. It's not hard to see connections being made between him and the draft dodger and the deserter during the Vietnam War era. Um, Also, if you look at the the descriptions of violence in the book, quite shocking, shocking and and lyrical, but very graphic descriptions of violence. Um, There are interesting ways in which I think Andacha is recalling the assassination of John F. Kennedy. And and not only that, but the media representations of that assassination. And as he's doing that, he's telling a bigger story about American history and the American relationship to violence. So I see Andachia there in that book as a kind of historian who's trying to identify patterns across centuries to tell a bigger story about American violence, American militarism. You get to Margaret Atwood's Surfacing, published just a couple of years later, and there I think the... Uh, the focus is very much on Canada. Uh, If Andacha gives Canada something of a free pass, insofar as it's represented, it seems to be apart from the violence. In in surfacing, uh, Atwood's almost representing Canada as a militarized zone. It is a place where her Canadian characters are intensely worried about American domination, about what they see as American imperialism. Yet the picture we get in this book is of people who are, of Canadians who are already themselves Americanized in certain respects. And in fact, themselves carrying out the kind of violence towards each other, towards the natural world that they're ascribing to Americans and that they're saying is, makes them um, separate from Americans. So I think Atwood is really show, reminding us that Canadian nationalists thinking of the time, even as it had a certain idealized picture of Canada in mind, was also very much often critical of Canada. Indeed, sometimes excoriated Canada, Canadians, the Canadian government for their complicity in what people saw as the, the worst uh, elements of America at the time. And and the wars, It's a, it comes out a little bit after the war in 1977.
0: And this is the novel by Timothy Finley.
1: Yeah, Timothy Finley writing about the First World War. So again, looking far back in history, again, um, Vietnam only gets a couple of... Uh, quick indirect mentions but they're sort of keys to thinking about the novel and i think one of the things finley's doing is thinking about the first world war as canada's vietnam you know it wasn't just canada's coming of age which is maybe the more dominant myth of the first world war right the 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 war where canada came into its own as a country Uh, finley's retelling of the story of the war is much more critical and Remarkably, his hero, his Canadian soldier, who, uh, Robert Ross, who goes through this ex- this traumatic experience of the war, is someone who's not straightforwardly straight. He's not straightforwardly um, of any particular sexual orientation. But he's certainly queer in that sense that his his sexuality is not just an, a normative uh, one. And he's at the same time the character that we're invited to see as emblematically Canadian. So this is a really interesting moment in Canadian. Literary history and it anticipates moments decades later uh, in the late 90s when uh, various cultural critics started to say Canada is a queer country. This was, of course, at a time when Canada had legalized same sex marriage ahead of the United States and um, various critics wanted to celebrate a certain association of Canada with queerness. Well, I think we can see Finley doing that back in 1977 and doing so in a very risky way, you know, in a time when. Homosexual sex acts were not had only recently been legalized in Canada, and you know there's widespread prejudice against gay people. So this is a, a radical thing for Finley to do, and he does it in quite a
0: dexterous and interesting way in that novel. It's a fantastic novel, and uh, it is uh, certainly uh, one of those novels that, as you go back to uh, it, it's it it seems to not only age well, but it it just seems to be. Uh, one of the most important novels of the era, at least from my perspective. Now, you use an arresting phrase that was originally coined by Benedict Anderson, uh, the imagined community of the nation. What do you mean by this phrase?
1: Anderson's thinking about how it is that we come to feel a sense of national identity. And when he's talking about imagined community, he's saying that when we imagine ourselves to be part of a country— We're imagining a connection to others, and that connection doesn't just come via a shared identification with a flag or a set of institutions. It comes through the sharing of stories, Um, the sharing of stories across geographies, so that people in Newfoundland can share the same stories at the same times, As people in any number of other provinces and territories in the country, and despite that geographical disparity, still feel like they're part of the same story, as it were, connected by by shared stories. Um, That's an idea of the nation that's been recognized as uh, as important in Canada for some time. You know, it was a key motivator for the creation of CBC Radio. And then CBC Television. There's the notion that culture is part of the glue that keeps the country together, and it's these it's culture that is the disseminator and the the circulator of of such stories. The Vietnam War period is really interesting in this respect because um, Canadian nationalists in the 60s were very highly aware of this inundation of the country by American media. They were concerned by the way in which American media were shaping Canadian opinions, not least about the war. And there was a, a sufficient pressure that the government instituted un- unprecedented support for, for culture in Canada. We got the CRTC formed. We got what was later Telefilm Canada instituted. So these new venues were created for the circulation of, of Canadian stories.
0: So I'm one of those baby boomers that was deeply affected by the Vietnam War and some of my first professors in university were draft dodgers who taught both history, and politics, sometimes sociology, through the lens of the anti-war movement for sure. Now how was the draft dodger generally depicted in Canadian literature?
1: That's a great question and in fact there was a bit of a slow take up. There were references to draft dodgers and deserters in certain Canadian poems uh, of the war, and they were—they tended to be sympathetic. What was more remarkable, perhaps, was that at the outset of the war, opinion polls seemed to suggest there wasn't a great support for draft dodgers coming to Canada. Um, There was a suspicion of these people, partly because support for the war itself at the outset of the war was fairly high and fairly in line with uh, American popular support of the war. It was only as the war increasingly became the quagmire that it was called that there was uh, the falling support in Canada for it, as in the U.S. And also greater sympathy towards uh, the draft dodger. I think that uh, I think that was partly also because media accounts of draft dodgers tended to be quite sympathetic. you know, in newspapers and magazines, portraits of them that showed them to be thoughtful and non-threatening people who, by and large, seemed quite happy to to settle into life in Canada rather than disrupt it. Also, I think we can understand the the general absence of representation because at a, at a fairly early point, it became clear that the question of whether or not draft dodgers were going to be accepted in Canada was not a pressing political one. The they were being allowed in tacitly for the most part. And then Pierre Trudeau explicitly came out and said that Canada would become, as he called it, a refuge from militarism. Draft Dodgers were going to be accepted into the country. So that wasn't the pressing political issue of the day for Canadian writers to address. It was the war itself and trying to bring the war to an end. So there's much more attention to um, what was happening in Vietnam. Um, When the Draft Dodger really has uh, his, his moment in Canadian literature interestingly is in the in the 1990s and i see, see it as happening in the wake of the free trade election of 199 of 1988 excuse me and in the wake of the institution of nafta and there's a, a resurgence of cultural nationalism there a worry about um what free trade would mean for canadian culture and we get certain characterizations that are almost caricatures in novels such as margaret atwood's uh, the robber bride and Mordecai Richler's Barney's version, version where uh, the 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 draft dodger is someone who's uh, who's threatening, who's not as politically committed as he might seem to be, who uh, is a, something of a cultural invader in Canada, and uh, you know who might even steal the Canadian uh, protagonist's girlfriend. A, a
0: dodgy dodger. <laughs> a dodgy dodger,
1: exactly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so will we as Canadians? Ever escape the shadow of the Vietnam War, given the importance of common narratives to understanding of history?
1: I suppose it it depends on what you mean by the shadow of it. Certainly, it'd be hard to escape the influence of it, as long as it remains an important part of certain myths of Canada, the myth of the peacekeeping country, for instance. And also, as long as it remains an important touchstone in the United States, which It continues to be, and it continues to be important uh, every four years during presidential elections when generally Democrats tend to threaten to move to the U.S. if the Republican gets elected, you know, and obviously the Canadian media pay attention to these threats. They pay attention even to the immigration numbers in the wake of the election and uh, whether there's an uptick or not. Um, And each time this happens, the Vietnam War gets referenced as, you know, the the last um, major point when American political dissidents led to uh, people crossing the border. You know, you mentioned at the outset um, that the Vietnam War is very much part of the baby boomers' uh, cultural memory. And as we go forward in time um, and the dominant generations, our later generations who didn't experience the war directly, it's gonna be really interesting to see which parts a Vietnam War story um, continue to be told in Canada, and and, and which get left out. There's a critic named Marianne Hirsch who talks about what's called post-memory, and it's the notion of the memory of a period carrying on, not necessarily through the people who, or not just through the people who lived through it, but... Through subsequent generations to whom they've passed on those memories, you know, um, both certain ideas about it and even the traumas and affects and emotions around it. and so the post memory of the Vietnam War in Canada is very much alive now. We can see that uh, in a raft of novels that were published about it. and uh, I think in partly in response to the war in Iraq, just as I was speaking about, my own interest being sparked by it. Um, and I think we're going to have to continue to look to to literature, not least then as the, the post-memory of the Vietnam War continues to change, um, to see, first of all, um, what things remain dominant, but also it's been, I think, always the role of creative writers to bring back into the conversation aspects of history that get dropped from the popular mainstream discussions and to remind people that history is more complicated than dominant myths might make it seem to be.
0: Robert, thank you so much for joining us in the studio today. My guest today was Robert McGill, who talked about his newest book, War is Here, the Vietnam War and Canadian Literature, published by McGill-Queens University Press in 2017. This interview was recorded at the Alan Slate Radio Institute of Ryerson University. It was produced by Sumit Damy. Thank you all.